Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Jeremy Goldkorn, hosting solo today as Kaiser is gallivanting in Paris. Today we're going to look at one of China's neighbors, a country that has been occupying ever more space um, in news about Asia, Burma or Myanmar. And to help us understand that country's uh, national situation and its relation to China, we have Simon Montlake, previous Seneca guest, Forbes Beijing bureau chief, and author of a recent piece for the magazine about GE, General Electric, and their Burmese dreams. Simon has been going to the country since 1998, so he has quite a lot of travel under his belt. Adding some depth and academic rigor, shall I say, to our understanding of the country is new guest Josh Gordon, a Yale PhD student in anthropology working on issues of uh, Burma-China relations and Chinese identity in Burma. Um, he first went to the country in 2003 and has spent several years conducting field research there along the border with China. His research, recent research at least, focuses on Myanmar's national narrative, which he calls the dream of the golden land, which sounds pretty scary. And he's fluent in Burmese as well as Chinese. With the introductions over, I'd like to ask the first question, Burma or Myanmar, what's the deal? <laughs> well, uh, to an extent, it's somewhat inconsequential now. Um, and that's Josh's voice for our yeah, listeners. So. I think you'll get used to it now, but... It's somewhat inconsequential now. I think that uh, the U.S. and U.K. are still holding out on Burma, but um, <clears throat> Myanmar is the common term in the country. Um, the, this, this distinction between the two terms became important in the um, era of the Tatmadaw government from 1988 until 2011 and sort of the sanctions era when um, the first uh, instance of the, the Tatmadaw government there changed the name say unilaterally, but, you know, it's a military dictatorship, so they don't really pay too much attention to what the people want. But they changed the name to Myanmar in a kind of a move to sort of shake off in their feeling, on the one hand, the legacy of the colonial past. And in another way, their rationale for it was that it was a more inclusive name because the name for the main ethnic group who composed perhaps two-thirds of the population in Burmese is Bama. So Burma, Bama, they didn't want the country named after the main ethnic group. In all truth, though, the main ethnic group was also in, in um, earlier and especially literary Burmese, also called Myanmar. So these are two names for the same thing, and they got batted around and caught up in the dispute over uh, the legitimacy of the military government with uh, Aung San Suu Kyi and the Democratic side and her supporters in the West refusing to accept this name change, and so that's when it became an important thing. It's now somewhat, I think, of a moot point. I think everyone's finally come around. I think even the BBC have sort of switched to Myanmar. I mean, uh, and what do people say in Myanmar then? In the language, you can say Myanmar, right? It's the well, you can say either one. What 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 happened is this became a touchstone issue. You know, it was kind of. I don't know if I can give an example. So in the U.S., if you were to talk about being pro-choice or pro-life, and you have to use a particular code word around the abortion debate, this was a code word uh, to show which side of the legitimacy debate about the government you were on. A shibboleth. A shibboleth, yes, exactly. And, um, well, think about how you would describe Taiwan, whether you were <laughs> Chinese or whether you were non-Chinese. Right. You're talking about the same place, the same country, and it's, right. an, it's a game. It's a word game, and it's kind of silly, but people played this for years. I mean, the U.S. government, when uh, the president went to visit uh, recently for the first time since, you know, the first time a president had been in 40, 50 years, and they were struggling with what to call the country. And, of course, they kind of fell back on this idea, well, we remember the last time the president of Burma came here because back then it was called Burma. But, I mean, they were so uncomfortable with saying it, you know, because it became this, are you, you know, are you on the righteous side? So, uh, God, I'm glad we don't have to talk about Okay, it's done. So let's, let's not waste any more time. Let's, let's get kind of into the, the meat of our program tonight. And let's start, Simon, with your recent piece for Forbes magazine. So it, it was about GE, the massive American corporation, and what it's doing or what it wants to do in Myanmar. What does it want to do? Well, like all of these multinationals, it, it's salivating over the idea of, of, this, of this country, which has uh, been closed off to them. I mean, they were invested there in the 80s and the 90s. And then you had this, what we were just talking about, the democracy movement, the boycott movement, and they, they, they pulled out. I mean, the reason they actually pulled out was because the state of Massachusetts uh, actually passed a law saying that companies that did business 
with Burma, as it was then, could not get contracts. They would be affected by their business in Massachusetts. And of course, that was a bigger deal for General Electric than the whole of Burma put together. How many people are there in Burma? Uh, 60 million, although no one really knows. The last census was in 1983, and so everyone's kind of extrapolated from there. The really last reliable census was the 1931 census and, under the British, so, you know, <laughs> 55, 60 million, something along those lines. Yeah, so, so I mean, for GE, you know, this is a, this is a great opportunity because what they, they do is they provide the big heavy equipment you need to run an economy, you know, the sort of electric, power, you know, water, um, uh, medical equipment, aircraft, aircraft engines, all this stuff. And so, you know, they were basically out of this market and now they're trying to get back in. And it, my story is really about how you, you know, it seems like a very easy thing to do and there's all this potential. But just as with any country that opens up, whether it's, you know, China in, in the 1980s or, um, you know, North Korea in the future, you know, everything you think you know about that country and how you think you, it's going to work is, is all up for grabs. Because, I mean, the essential difference between what China did under Deng Xiaoping and what Burma is, Myanmar is trying to do is Myanmar is trying to do both an economic opening and liberalization and have a democratic system which opens up space for civil society and kind of lifts the lid off all the stuff that was crammed down before. It's not the we'll do the econo economy first and the rest can, can wait. So they're taking on a much bigger challenge. Well, why are they doing that? I mean, why haven't they followed what's, I mean, what the, the change that was noticed in the media, Josh, and I'd like you to answer this question, was that basically in the last year, Myanmar went from being a client state of China into a country that has some kind of democracy and is open to the West and seems to be much more receptive to American and other Western overtures. Why did this happen? And why did the leaders in Myanmar decide to pull a Gorbachev on the country, as the Chinese might put it? I mean, why are they opening up politics as well as economics? Well, first of all, I think um, we kind of have to wait and see the extent to which politics really gets opened up with the uh, 2015 election and see what happens with the Constitution because um, they've written the military's role into the Constitution and the military, which you know were the leaders and could be the uh, the military and related cronies or the people we could see as being in the in the role of say the the, the party here, uh, sort of you know running the whole show and getting the benefits from it. Um, <clears throat> They've written themselves in in a way where they may stick around. It's hard to say exactly what will happen after 2015 if we'll have the USDP, the Union Solidarity Development Party, you know, just completely washed out as they were in the by-elections where um, Aung San Suu Kyi's uh, party basically took almost all the seats. Um, and they have, and whether that'll result in the constitution really being amended as the NLD, uh, National League for Democracy, Aung San Suu Kyi's party would like. So I think that they. They, a, there's a lot of debate about why they actually step back. And I don't think that we can have a particularly uh, clear answer as to why they stepped back. But it's better, I think, to look at the situation overall and say that there was what we had in Myanmar and Burma um, from at least 1988. And we could even say from 1962, which is the period when the military first, well, it's the second coup, actually, but the period when they really, they're control began and it didn't end, although it went through various changes until 2011. What you have is um, a sort of autarkic way of, of getting of the military trying to get control of the country and remove it from um, interaction with the outside world. They tried then in 88 to sort of reintegrate and get more spoils uh, from sort of capitalist development. But I think that the, the changes that the political changes that happened were just the break in a fragile system and why the system broke. Most people thought that the system would break in a violent way, like it broke down momentarily in 1988. We saw the 2007 um, so-called saffron revolution, monks actually wearing burgundy robes, where people thought that, you know, there'd be a violent overthrow of it. But I think one of the potential things is that the you know, people in leadership, Than Shui, the former uh, senior general and people around him wanted to perhaps preserve their position and not wind up in the position of uh, the former dictator, Ne Win, where, you know, his uh, relatives, his grandsons wound up in, in prison and he was, you know, disgraced when well, he left power. Well, all the Gaddafi solution. I mean, you know, yeah. there's, there's many ways that dictatorships go. And uh, this is an incredible, it's a rare example of a voluntary stepping back. 
and letting things, in theory, carry on uh, without them. Although, you know, where, as you said, they've written their role into the Constitution, they're still very powerful. But it's a very strange, it's a very strange, it was always a weird dictatorship because it wasn't, after Ne Win, who was the, you know, the original sort of uh, charismatic despot, you then had a really colorless bunch of, you know, rather... Hujintao-type generals. Yeah, the right. Hujintao generals took over. And, and so there was no personality cult. There was no personality. So it, it wasn't sort of a Gaddafi, Mubarak-type sort of, you see his face everywhere, da-da-da, this is the guy who, who kind of looks over you. It was, um, they, they just had no popularity. I mean, they were just like almost caretakers who didn't know, they didn't seem to know a way out. They tried a little bit of, well, let's let these Asian countries invest. We'll do some deals. We'll sell some stuff to the Chinese. And that will modernize the country. But it, it, it just failed. I mean, the economy was just in such a state. They couldn't really find, they couldn't finesse the Chinese idea of keeping control and building a vibrant economy. They just ended up with a, with a real mess. Well, I think an important thing is to look at how the transition may not be that thoroughgoing when we think about how the economy was, was run there and the level of sort of cronyism and the fact that, you know, the cronies who are connected to the generals uh, really had, you know, vast control over sort of vast economic resources. Uh, you know, this is something that's not, those, those are going to be a lot, it, that control is probably going to remain until such time as there, you know, there's some real thoroughgoing reform in the economic structure. And for um, Aung San Suu Kyi to do something like that, I mean, she would have to have some other sort of power base outside of popular support, and that seems a little bit difficult. So I think that the control that the military has, and the, the recent, okay, the recent events, which we haven't really brought up yet in conflict with, uh, in uh, Rakhine the State, the Muslim, anti-Muslim. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that That's a, a huge, yeah. huge issue. Before yeah. we get on to that, though, I would like to ask a question. So it seems to me, I mean, reading your story about GE just reminds me so strongly of China in the 1990s. Uh, you know, it was after Tiananmen, people decided, okay, we're going to come back. And, you know, the big companies like GE, ABB, the big infrastructure companies were salivating. And many of them did indeed make a lot of money. But also what happened at that time was that the Chinese political elite basically divvied up the spoils. So the vast fortunes uh, that you see many of the elite families have today, basically, you know, many of them were made starting in the 1990s. And it seems to me like that's what's going to happen in Myanmar. Is that not, I mean, aren't GE talking to the dodgy general's children who are going to own 10% of the power generation joint venture with GE or 50% or whatever, and we're going to see a kind of crony capitalism emerge? Well, there already is a crony is capitalism. What the, the, the issue that GE have is that it's, it's, it's as if when the companies uh, arrived back after in the 90s in China, there was a list from the U.S. government saying you cannot invest in any com company which is owned by this party member, this governor, this official, da-da-da. There is a list of 100 or so entities which are still under U.S. sanctions. Right. So that includes um, some of the big guys that own some of the big assets. It includes all the military holding companies. I mean, the list is kind of not complete, but, I mean, it's... It's not that simple. Even if they wanted to get into bed with those people, and those people, perhaps the ground is shifting from under them anyway. So it's the, the difficult thing right now is saying where does where does power lie? You knew where power lied in China in the 1990s. You knew once you figured out the we party, still know. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite easy. Um, so you you can sort of follow the party flow charts, and if someone is a relative, okay, then you just figure out how close they are and what they can really deliver. It's a whole nother story, man. I mean, I, I really, I came away after spending, a, you know, a week with G thinking they don't really know either. Uh, and there are various brokers who might introduce you to them. But you, you know what I mean? Like the, the, there's both the kind of these guys are banned. They're on the list. You can't do business with them under U.S. sanctions. And then there's the who the hell are these people anyway? Yeah. <laughs> they say they represent themselves as being important players. But um, right. remember, the, the, the new government is sort of the, some of them are the old government winner you know, with taking off their uniforms, putting on new clothes. Some of them are new faces. Some of them are recycled. And then there's Aung San Suu Kyi and the opposition. I mean, are they power brokers? Should you be in bed with them? Or are they actually the opposition and kind of useless? Well, and I think, uh, for example, I did some consulting work uh, there talking to some uh, uh, with some Chinese who were interested in doing some oil investing there. And on the Burmese side, the difficult thing was to figure out who 
the your your you know counterparty really was. I mean, you, you had these representations, but when you dig into the structure of the companies, and it's it's really a mess, and it's obviously designed to sort of throw you off as to who's really behind it. And then there are questions as to you know why would this why would this person have this kind of uh, power? Why would they have this sort of like access to resources? And I think that there's a constant thought that well, who's the real crony? behind this, you know, this facade of a crony that you're dealing with. And I think this isn't partially response to, you know, the sanctions regime still being in place. And so I think this, the power, that the economic power that, um, <clears throat> you know, crony capitalism is not going to develop now. Crony capitalism is going to probably continue now. And right. it's already set up. It's already set up. But it's not quite as organized as in China. <laughs> I don't think anything is quite as organized in China in the sense of centralized control. I mean, you'd have to go back to Lenin's Russia to get that level of, of centralized control. Fair I mean, enough, fair is enough. Is African corruption that organized? I, no. I, I'm not accusing <laughs> you of being part of it. I'm just, uh, <laughs> Good. Um, let's get back to China. So the, the relationship with China, I, I'm curious because my sort of layperson's understanding of this is that <clears throat> Burma and Myanmar seem to be basically like um, Eastern Pakistan. It was kind of like a, a you know, lips and teeth relationship with China. It seemed to be pretty much a client state of China. Well, that's the way it was talked about. Then the first incident that I think alerted the lay person that something was, you know, going differently at least was the dam. Uh, what was the name of the dam? Miso. So there was a dam that was supposed to be constructed by a Chinese group, and basically local people rebelled, and the, the project was cancelled. And then, I mean, in my memory of it, very soon after that, suddenly, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi was out, and there was talk of democracy, and GE was, you know, sending representatives <laughs> to Yangon, and it seemed that everything flipped in a really short space of time. I know that's a ridiculous simplification, but, I mean, can you kind of walk us through that timeline, Josh? Well, I think that's relatively accurate, and I think it's, uh, while it's a simplification, I think that gets at the heart of the matter. I think the... Um, <clears throat> Interesting thing is it's accurate in, in the description of those events with Mitzon being a key turning point. Um, it wasn't just that local people rebelled. There was a combination of two things that went on that made Mitzon kind of a key event. One was that the, the local people in that area who are the Kachin, uh, who are uh, – there are groups that are also part of the Kachin ethnicity on the China side. For example, the Jingpo are the main group, but also Lisu and, and several others. So they're a related ethnic group in the northern area where that, that dam is. They had been – up in arms against the dam uh, for quite some time and had written letters to Hu Jintao. There had been protests of Kachin people in London and in Malaysia and other places and so forth um, against the dam, which was going to flood an area what, larger than, I think, Singapore, including that Mitzon is a confluence, and it's a confluence of two rivers, and that has special sort of uh, origin myth significance to the Kachin. So there was, on the local level, the Kachin who'd been... They just signed another preliminary ceasefire. They'd had a ceasefire for 18 years and then had a brief uh, reopening of the war with uh, the Tatmadaw, the Burmese uh, central government's armed forces. And that's just recently, I guess, agreed to another uh, preliminary ceasefire with that. But that local group was dead set against the dam continually. What happened then is the dam became another kind of issue. It became an issue that uh, at that at that moment, <clears throat> you really sort of still weren't allowed to do politics openly in Myanmar. But this, the dam was about the Irrawaddy, the river that is the central sort of uh, artery of the country, and it became about preserving the Irrawaddy as a sort of cultural landmark. It became about the idea of environmental protection, and most importantly, it was about being against China. China being seen as the exploiter, you know, this was a deal, a uh, build-operate-transfer deal where, what, 10% of the electricity, I think, was going to go to Myanmar, a country where maybe a quarter of the people have access to electricity. So this became a very um, big symbolic thing. And even the day that it happened, I was talking to someone uh, in Mandalay, and they were saying, oh, you know, this, this tosh about you know, save the Irrawaddy. It's great that they can, people can say that, but, you know, the government's never going to listen. They sell everything out to the Chinese. And, you know, right. here, this was the big change. It was kind of the break where you saw, oh, wait a minute, maybe this isn't just uh, new wine and old bottles. Maybe there'll be some real significant change. Yeah, and, and the reaction in 
Beijing was very much you could you go you go back and you look what the foreign ministry said and they were caught off guard they were very unhappy they talked about you know sanctity of contracts and all the rest of it sanctity of contracts exactly <laughs> that's delightful I know yeah <laughs> oh, I love that so they they found themselves I, on the I'm going to dig up that statement and use it someday somewhere. <laughs> Um, no, the, the 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 flip is 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 incredible. I actually uh, on this trip uh, met the ambassador, the Chinese ambassador to to Yangon. I mean, the very fact that the Chinese ambassador to Myanmar was willing to give an interview, was willing to open up and and, and let me talk to him on the record. You're a representative of the imperialist American media propaganda machine. Exactly, right. and I think that tells you that the. China has now changed its tune, that the Chinese companies and the Chinese government is starting to say, well, you know, we also believe in environmental protection. We are here to help the people. Look, we just built a school. Look, look at that road. I mean, like they're playing the game of multinationals developing, you know, in developing countries trying to, you know, uh, win over local elites and also, you know, show that they're part of the solution. So, And is, is it working? It's just starting, I think. Would you say it's having an impact, I, I Josh? think it, okay, the actual programs started earlier. To be fair, they so, did start they, earlier. And so it's more a question of them trying to publicize it. But the programs do not, like many things in Myanmar, work in the way that they're supposed to or are advertised to. So the compensation that's passed out doesn't get to the person whose land is actually taken. Um, I have... You know, friends or work for local NGOs there who did actually a survey along the pipeline. Actually, the more important, strategically speaking, Chinese mega project there, the pipeline complex. And, you know, they went on a motorbike, a dirt bike from village to village, talking to the villagers about the compensation. Now, some of the villagers were quite happy to get anything at all because they assumed they would just be bereft of any compensation because that's kind of, you know, how things work there or have worked there to an extent. Sound but, familiar? <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that's most of the world, really. <laughs> if you're. Poor, you get screwed. You know, that's really the way the world works, isn't it? <laughs> um, but the so pipeline, sorry, you're right. The pipeline is, get, there's, no, there's no delay to the pipeline, and that's a pretty big project for China. So it's like taking gas, offshore Burmese gas, which is coming onshore and then being piped into, across to Yunnan. And then beside it, there's another pipeline which will carry crude oil, which is coming in from big tankers from the Middle East. So it's, an, it's a very strategic way of getting energy into the country and into the southwest, into Yunnan and Guangxi and these places. And these relationships and deals are intact? Well, for, for, now. for now. There's talk that the, uh, they'll be reopened. And the talk that they're going to be reopened, I think, has started to circulate not just in discussion about the NLD, but in, in discussion about the government more generally, which is now the, as they say, the quasi-civilian government, the USDP government, the Union Solidarity Development Party that came out of the military's mass organization, the Union Solidarity Development Association. So the government now, like the, the, the president now was the prime minister under the last military government. So he just stopped being a general, put on a, a longi and became the president. So, you know, the the, is that traditional they're, they're, uh, sarong, sarong. Burmese sarong, yeah. right? Like a shawa kameez for yeah. Buddhists. Yeah, right. yeah. So really, you know, the, 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 the figures are uh, to a large extent the same, but now their, their take on these deals has become something that really reflects more the popular will. And that breaking point, again, was meat zone, where that became something that the military said, okay, it's uniting the sort of, to the extent that there's an educated urban middle class and the ethnic opposition, and, and uniting that in a kind of anti-China frenzy. And I think mm -hmm. a really interesting thing that, that's happening now uh, is we see that this sort of mm, popular anger, which is getting expression in Myanmar, is not being expressed at the Chinese, who had really been, uh, for the, you know, the 1988 to 2011 period, I think the popular villains, the, the vampire of China, taking out the natural resources um, in league with the top echelons of the, of the military who are you know, making themselves rich with this kind of, and, and their cronies, making themselves rich selling off the national patrimony cheaply to China. Of course, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but there's quite a lot of truth to that, that description of it too. But is that changing? I uh, mean, is that... I think that it's changing in the sense that now we have the possibilities for Western companies to come in. Now, Western companies haven't come in that much. The Chinese are somewhat entrenched. We have more people opening in terms of who, who are going to be the players that have access to the power because we have this looming election and what's going to happen with the, with the NLD. And we have, to some extent, the need to appease popular will. That sort of that precedent was set out there with, with Meat Zone. And now you know, we have Aung San Suu Kyi out there as a, as a politician who's actually really dependent 
kind of an unpopular will. We have the threat electorally to the the, the quasi uh, quasi civilian government in the form of the USDP. Uh, you know that Aung San Suu Kyi will sweep the elections in 2015, and so a lot of people feel that this the anti-Muslim sentiment is a kind of uh, uh, distraction from from you know this kind of uh, real power struggle and the, and the, and also the focus on the potential for uh, changing the relationship with with China. So I think things have the potential to change, but I don't think that they've changed really along those lines. I mean, China's got an economic head start, and they have these large projects there. Meat zone is off, but the pipeline's connected. I think the gas pipeline is supposed to start actually transmitting gas at, uh, at the end of July, although the oil pipelines not, won't be ready in for a few months. So I'd like to talk about Buddhist terrorism soon, because why not? Uh, but before we get into that, one last question for Simon about sort of GE, I guess, and the business environment. I mean, your story and some of the other reporting I've read from Myanmar and also the talk of those kind of investment banky types you meet who like to be a bit edgy. It really does feel to me like a kind of China in the 90s kind of vibe. Uh, um, I mean, what's your sense on the, the actual business opportunities in uh, Myanmar at the moment? I mean, is this like if you're a young strapping thing wanting to make your fortune, would you go to Yangon or not? You know, uh, Those people are there telling you about how they're going to make a fortune. Um, I don't think they will. I think it's very hard to do that. And the the, um, there are certain there are certain business opportunities where you can get in there quick. Right now, tourism, anything to do with tourism, you've got you know suddenly from having hundreds of thousands of people, you've got millions. There's no hotel space. There's a huge demand for that. You know you can get you can people are they're building hotels all over Yangon. I mean that sort of first flush of here's a chance to make money. Uh, if you're Pepsi, if you're a Unilever, you know that that spending power is being unleashed. That's great. Um, the harder question is making investments for the long term and who's your partner and where are you going to be um i think that there's a huge buzz which is already starting to fade a bit i think the early flush came in 2011 2012 um but yeah you can meet plenty of those people uh in in yangon who think they're going to get rich scammers and yeah, schemers. oil and gas i think oil and gas and, and mining minerals would be the, the other areas where there's surely going to be something that will take off ideally there would be light manufacturing but i think that the infrastructure and land cost and labor environment actually aren't all that good for light manufacturing which would be a much better um sort of way for development there why, why? what's wrong with the labor Situation. Well, the labor, it's not the labor situation that you'd have in China where, you know, everyone is going to, you know, listen. I mean, they've already had a series of strikes. The new labor law actually allows, I think, uh, foreigners. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and sometimes it's the Zhongguo Laoban saying the yeah. and then that adds another, you know, element uh, yeah. to that conflict yeah. or Taiwanese or uh, Korean factory bosses. So I think that, uh, you know, other things like lack of electricity, you know, you have to burn diesel for well, all of your factories. Well, that's kind of what the GE story is partly about. I mean, one they of the big to, uh, elements is, <laughs> is, is, you know, literally turning on the power. Like, our country is in yeah. darkness. I mean, you, you once you leave the major cities, you just plunge into darkness. I mean, there really is no power. So when you've got that level of underdevelopment, you've got to start somewhere. And I mean, you know, GE's pitch is, okay, you've actually got these power plants which are barely held together by superglue. I mean, they're mm. just like, remember, under the sanctions, they weren't being serviced. They couldn't get spare parts. So they're, they're, they're barely working. They're producing, you know, half of what they could be producing. And meanwhile, the power is getting lost along the way mm. anyway because of the transmission line. So the idea is you invest in some of that equipment. And remember, they've already got gas. I mean, the country has natural gas. It has hydropower. It's just not efficiently getting out there. And that's even before you go down the road of let's build new power plants. So... Um, I think the government is going to be judged in 2015 by whether people actually have electricity and whether they've got, you know, phones or, or, or any other. Yeah, the, the, I think electricity is very important. There were electricity uh, shortage, electricity outage protests in the major cities, I believe, last year. And that was a, right. a big deal. In fact, one of the G guys said to me, you know, these are protests that we can get behind. <laughs> Like, normally, if you're the country manager, there's a protest. You know, your, your guys back home are going, what the hell's going on there? But this time, it's like, they're protesting because they need they electricity. <laughs> right. 
They love it. And and mobile phones would also be another seriously important issue because the mobile phone pricing structure used to be that you had to actually buy it from the Ministry of, I mean, when it first started, buy it from the Ministry of Communications, and I think they were about 1500 US dollars if you actually bought it there. A for lot the, of people. For the SIM card. Yeah, it's for the, the SIM world's card. most yeah. expensive SIM cards. It was just yeah. this incredible scam they ran, and the service was a poor well, And then what you do is, it's if you're the relative of the general or something, you get to buy the SIM cards at 100 SIM cards or whatever, $1,500 US. You go out in the black market, nobody else can buy them. 3,000 US. And this is a country where, you know, your average sort of worker is making $30 a month. I, but has, this has changed? This oh. has changed. Yeah. This has changed, what, about 200 US now for the SIM cards. And they have wow. these, they had these, this is a very Burmese thing, but they had for a while these $50 and $20 temporary SIM cards, which only had, you know, that amount of charge on them, but you couldn't recharge them. Yeah, it was like a When burner. the number was done. It's like a drug dealer burner. Yeah, yeah you just throw it away. <laughs> wow. But no, they last week they finally announced that they're awarding two licenses to foreign companies to come in and build a massive network, 3G and everything, over the next few years. So this will be billions of dollars, in theory, flowing into that. So this is going to change. I mean, it's the, on the, it's what the last country in Southeast Asia. I mean, look, you can go to Cambodia tomorrow, get off the plane for $5. You can get a SIM card, loading up with credit, put it in your phone. You can be on 3G. This is Cambodia, for God's sake. They're way behind on this. So this, this is going to be a, a catch-up. I, I think uh, electricity and phones is going to be a big thing for the next few years. Okay, let's let's get on to the subject of, you know, I mean, we can start from Time Magazine's cover uh, story, um, The Face of Buddhist Terror. Um, so there is something that I think if you're not really following Burm, Burmese issues, Myanmar issues closely, it's quite difficult to understand what's going on. There are extremist Buddhists killing Muslims, which seems very counterintuitive to the usual narrative about these two religious groups. Well, can you explain what, what's going on? Ah, it's complicated, but I'm going to hand over to Josh. Okay, well, <clears throat> so in my talking about uh, national narrative that you mentioned in my introduction, I want to bring up a little of this, I think, to try and explain it. So I think that there's a national narrative in sort of the modern Myanmar. This is a post-colonial state, so a state that was formed by British colonialism. And sort of the basic idea there is that for the Bama people, the people who form, you know, the central Irrawaddy Valley, two-thirds of the population, predominantly, pretty, pretty much categorically Buddhist, mm. uh, categorically Theravada Buddhist. They're, Which is like Sri Lanka Buddhism, like, exactly. not like Tibetan Buddhism. Right, Sri Lanka, not like uh, Tibet. Um, so their um, <clears throat> view is that... Um, Myanmar's, you know, it's a special strategic location with these, you know, fabulous natural resources. And for them, that's created a paradigm in their mind that it attracts sort of covetous outsiders who then cooperate with treacherous insiders. And there used to be these, I think they're still up, all these Tatmadaw propaganda billboards about the people's desire. And, you know, the people's desire to crush all internal and external threats and, and to, um, you know, work with the top and all this. And there was a focus on this combination of an internal and an external threat, because this is, you know, sort of response to the colonial era where they felt like the minority peoples, the Kachin, for example, in the north, or the Korean who converted to Christianity, um, and also the Asian immigrant minorities, the British, when felt that Chinese and uh, were very industrious and, you know, capitalist sort of oriented and helped with the integration of the colony into this, uh, into the capitalist system of the British Empire. And so did people from the Indian subcontinent. And Burma, after being incorporated from 1826 to uh, 1888 in the, uh, into the British India colony, was actually part of that colony until 1937. So there was an influx of these, you know, Asian immigrant minorities. They sort of dominated the capitalist uh, the coming of capitalism to Burma. And this is seen, and, and then, so we get this weird, the, the counterpoint against this in, um, in Burmese history is this weird mix of socialism and Buddhism, which we comes to the, the head with Nguyen in his uh, uh, Burma Socialist Program Party. So that's, it's, it's a very strange thing, but Buddhism is, is mixed up with being Burman and being Burmese. And it's mixed up with the idea of being a little bit paranoid about the outside world and thinking that, you know, people are here to get your good stuff and that they're working with these treacherous inside elements. So this fit the paradigm very well with the Chinese. And interestingly, the popular view during the 88 to, to 2011 period was kind of like, oh, the Chinese are coming in and the top military leaders are selling out the country for their own, you know, the military leader's own personal benefit to the Chinese. Whereas the military's view that pretty much no one believed was that Aung San Suu Kyi was going to sell out, if she ever got power, she would sell out the country to the neo-colonialists in the West. 
So now we have this discourse that, 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 that pops up that said, okay, another old enemy from colonial days, the people from South Asia who are predominantly or prototypically seen as being Muslim, even though a lot of them you know, in the colonial period weren't actually Muslim, but the, the word kala, the sort of slur word for Indian uh, or Muslim is sort of, it bridges the Indian and Muslim in, in Burmese. So this is another group that sort of has this negative heritage from the colonial era. So we see this paranoia the paranoia structurally is there, and it just shifts from going having one you know set of players in the slots to having another set of players in the slots. So here we have talk about how the Rohingya, who are horribly persecuted and awfully poor, and escape to Bangladesh or risk their lives on, on boats to try and get to Malaysia. In other words, their situation is quite awful, how they're somehow a threat to the country and going to take it over. Well, because they are breeding and having too many babies, and, you know, it, it's, there, there's a lot of... There's a lot of um, it's it's weird. It's like the Buddhist thing could be seen as religious intolerance, so it's a religious hatred, but it's kind of ethnic, really. I mean, the, religion it's the and dark-skinned people ethnic. who are sort of not really like us, and and um, a lot of the um, I believe a lot of the South Asians who came over were actually money lenders and were in. Well, this is the Chediers, which is a particular particular uh, class, class who yeah. were in that, and so everyone sort of gets counted in that way. It's a little bit like you know anti-Jewish programs in Europe in the 19th century. Like it sounds the, very much like it, sort of European. Yeah. Anti-Semitism. I mean, the, the, the insiders is. who but are kind of outsiders who are business. not from the Volk, not from the soil. You yeah. know, there's a lot of parallels here, which is why you get back to this guy Uratu, um, this Uratu, this monk who's on the cover of Time magazine, who's identified. And like, you know, the comments he makes in there are quite outrageous, but he's been making them everywhere for the last few years, unapologetically. And he speaks to a certain chauvinism and for intolerance. Ten for ten years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess we never noticed him before. Well, but now he's the, out and he's The, the shocking thing where you say, okay, this runs against the narratives of these two religions. We think, oh, you know, the Islamic terrorists and the sort of the, you know, the Buddhist peace-loving mm. people. This is, if we know anything about Sri Lanka, we can see that things are a little bit more complicated than that. But leaving that aside, the sort of tradition in, in Burma has been that Buddhist, Buddhism and Buddhist monks were involved in nationalism, and the nationalist struggle was, you know, ethno-racial nationalism that mixed, using the sort of the, the British colonial era discourse of race and thinking of the Burmans as a race, but part of being Burman pretty much is being Buddhist. And so this is a, you know, we're us we, we can't think of it simply as it's a religious conflict. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of ethnicized conflict. And these people are seen as kind of, the Muslims are seen as a holdover from the colonial era and where they um, had power, like, like in, in, in the European sort of situation with the Jews. Jews were outside of the sort of uh, agricultural economy structure. So when we had a development of a trading capitalist economy and that brought about great wealth, they were in a position to take advantage of that. Similar sort of thing with both Muslims and ethnic Chinese. The Chinese, though, however, are it's a little easier for ethnic Chinese who had immigrated there, there to, to integrate. But we did in 1967 have an anti-Chinese, series of anti-Chinese riots and suppression of Chinese culture in, in Burma previously. And the Chinese can also have greater emigration options, I would imagine. I mean, they have, would have family ties to other parts of Southeast Asia. Sure, and, sure, sure. Right. Yeah, they're not going to be on a, on a rickety boat sailing for an uncertain future but, in Malaysia, which is what you're happening with the Rohingya people. How many Rohingya people are there? A million and a half, two million. So it's a big group of people. But, but the Rohingyas, we ha I think it's important to make a just If people really want to understand the situation of Muslim communities in Myanmar, we have to understand that the Rohingya are a special case in a particular area in the northern part of Yakine or Rakhine state on the, on the border with Bangladesh. And there are other Muslim groups. There's a sense of just Bur Burmese Muslims who are in central Burma and who have a... A lot of them are of South Asian origin, but the South Asian origin is, is more... How can I? It's more distant, both physically, perhaps, and both uh, temporally. So, and there's a lot of mixing. I mean, I have lots of Muslim friends there, and you know, they, in their family history, they have you know, members of their family who were Buddhist, and they have intermingling and this kind of thing. Um, and that group is very different, and had been much, much less sort of uh, explicitly controversial. There are always occasionally. I mean, uh, Ruath was put in prison in, what, 2003 over some communal violence in central Burma. So this stuff has been happening. It's just the scale is different. But the Rohingya are another case. Pretty much they're really well, hated they're by Well, for a start. They don't no. actually. Burma ha recognizes 135 national races, and they're not one of them. 
so they don't count. And so they may have lived there for a generation or two or three, but they're the Burmese, sorry, the Myanmar people and the Myanmar government says they're Bengalis. They're basically, they've come over from Bangladesh. They're not ours. Go back to Bangladesh. And Bangladesh says, well, no, they've lived in your country for years. They're not ours. And by the way, we've got, you know, 160 million people. Do you think we can feed them? Go back. And so they're kind of getting, you know, two countries are trying to, trying to reject them. I mean, it's a, mm. that's, a, that's a particularly bad situation. Whereas... Actually, the Muslims who are more integrated and living in central Burma, living in towns and cities, that is an even more worrying phenomenon in the sense that, like, you burn down a mosque and then revenge happens. I mean, I was in Indonesia after Suharto fell, and there's a lot of parallels with what happened there. You know, you had the same sort of mix of ethnics and religious, and and there was a lid put on it by the dictatorship. You take that away, and all the old stuff comes out again. And there are people who... Want to, want to stir it up. I mean, there are some uh, people in, in Myanmar, particularly around certain sort of democracy activist groups, who believe this is all a plot by yeah. the generals who've sort of stepped back and got a, you know, a sort of out of power, that they are pulling the strings and trying to show that, you know what, democracy, hmm, are you sure you don't want us back again? Remember with the good times, we're in charge, we've got the gun, nothing goes wrong. But- I mean, I, I, I don't think it's as coherent as that. But there is a fear that this is sort of laying the groundwork. There's an element to that. But there's also another element that I think that Thane Sane's government, I, you know, I've seen some sort of Thane Sane's going to trip to Europe, some roundly condemning him activist sort of literature out there about how he's, you know, his government is not sufficiently preventing genocide. The thing is, you got to think about the top Madal or the Myanmar police. If they step in in this situation, what's going to happen? The West is going to roundly condemn the massacre that's going to occur when, you know, the not particularly well-trained, basically heavy-handed security forces step in. And also, the Burmese uh, saying in the bureaucracy is, like, uh, don't do anything, uh, you won't have any mess, and you won't get fired. So basically, drink tea and just shake your head yes. Yeah, and, and, and don't, don't do any work at all. It sounds like a fairly Chinese strategy to me. Uh, it's, it's, I think they're, they've perfected it there. So, in Burma. So if a, if a local commander sees some sort of incident happening and they don't have a direct order to take some decisive action about it they're just going to kind of stand back and, and right. try to do as little as they can because what they're thinking about is oh if i do something oh my head could be on the line right for this. whereas if a bunch of crazy buddhist monks kill a bunch of muslims, muslims. well it's for muslims yeah. you know, well. yeah okay um one last question on this then is um there's been some sort of negativity in the english media the western media about uh, Aung san Suu Kyi not making a, a vocal statement against the uh uh you know what's been going on um i mean how do we read that is that just how do we read that um you know if you see her as a political figure um, and she's making political calculations, then perhaps she's making the right calculation. If you see her as being someone who transcends that, someone who's a Nobel Peace Laureate who believes in the, in the principles of tolerance and nonviolence and all the rest of it, I personally find it very disappointing that she has not been prepared to spend any of her you know, enormous uh, political capital and, and credibility to make a, a stronger stance against that sort of action. But that's my personal view. I think in the Burmese and once context, again, let's remind listeners: you are a representative of the evil imperialist. I, I am. Media, I am British, so. and I'm part of the evil imperialist. <laughs> there, there we go. That's 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 me. But yeah, so Aung San Suu Kyi's, and it's not just this. I mean, this is maybe maybe worse in some ways. But the Kachin conflict, she was also you know notably mute about the the Kachin conflict that with you know, restarting and, and, and not being able to, the government's constant calls for their troops to stop fighting, which not, didn't amount to any stoppage of fighting. So Aung San Suu Kyi is, I think, uh, you know, playing for the 2015 election. And she realizes that, you know, unfortunately, we had this image of Burma with this saintly woman and the evil generals and the oppressed people, right? Unfortunately, it's a little bit more complicated that and the people aren't all as saintly. And maybe even Aung San Suu Kyi isn't as, as, as saintly as people would have her projected to be. She's got two constituencies, okay? She's got a constituency of her supporters in the West who sort of helped her, uh, gave pressure to Burma, support and, and things for her uh, over the period of the post-88 period. Then she's got to think about, okay, I've got to actually get an elect- elected here. In a country where, you know, I talked to uh, one of the uh, representatives for NLD, 
about how did you campaign? So I went out and I just campaigned. I showed people a picture of me with Aung San Suu Kyi. And they're like, do you, do you like Aung San? Aung San Suu Kyi's father, the f- sort of father of Burmese independence. And everyone's like, oh, yes. Well, so do you like Aung San Suu Kyi? And they say, oh, of course. Here's a picture of me with Aung San Suu Kyi. Vote for me. So the electorate is, is it's not particularly sophisticated. But the one thing that's going to have more pull, okay, than Aung San Suu Kyi personally is going to be Buddhism. And so when we get something portrayed as like, you know, uh, a threat to Buddhism, Aung San Suu Kyi's reasoned discourse about liberal values and how we have to have tolerance is, is not really going to play with the audience that's actually going to vote there. There are not many votes for standing up for those, those Muslims who've been run out of their house, who've had their you know, mosque burned down, who've been forced to stay in a camp, cannot leave their camp for fear of being attacked. She's not really looking for their votes, basically. It's that simple. So to me, that shows that she's just a politician. Politician, And, you know, uh, but think about it. If, I mean, I know I'm raising the bar incredibly high here, but if it was Desmond Tutu or Nelson Mandela or someone else who was recognized as a, you know, a peace person, a campaigner, well, you know, would I they mean, not stand up for the principle? But we don't have the, we, I, I, well, I don't know the specifics you know of those transitions, but we don't have the sense, I think, of the transition being fully na- nailed down yet. I think after we see what happens in 2015, we'll ha- she might have a lot less leeway. She might have a lot more leeway. That it, it, it's hard to say at this point. But the transition, even on the, the you know, not talking about the crony capitalism and the economic control, which I think is very important, but just on the level of you know, being able to amend the Constitution, actually having control of the legislature and being able to move thing, bills through. Right, you're saying when she's in charge, we'll see if what she's, she's charge, made yeah. of if she's in charge. Okay, we're, we're kind of running out of time. I'd like to ask one more question of Josh before we get on to our last section recommendations, which is just a, a simple question about names in Myanmar, people's names. I, I once met a, a Burmese person who he told me his name was U, and he didn't have a surname or a first name. That was his name. Am I correct that people don't necessarily have a surname? And can you explain their naming conventions? Yeah, people don't have a surname. Um, it'd be it's kind of, what, that you pick U is, is a little bit odd, but uh, because U is also a title. And actually, it's quite funny. You see, if you read the Chinese newspaper about Myanmar, you, you'd think that everyone, Xing Wu, all the males, Xing Wu, right? Their last name is Wu because they're all, their title for an older or respectful title for a male is U. Or maybe right. he just wanted me to. Uh, but people call also him, so, have people. So maybe lie. But people also have <laughs> "oo" as a syllable in their name. Hmm. Okay, so usually have uh, three and four syllable names. Uh, when you fill out forms in in Myanmar, there's always a space on the form for your father's name. So you have to give your name and then your father's name. So we know that you're this person with this birth date whose father's name was this. So that essentially serves as a way of sort of distinguishing people that surname. So that's like uh, Arabs and Jews with bin Laden. Yeah, but it doesn't become a formal part of your name. This is just a convention for filling out forms. Full forms. So people's names are not, uh, they don't have surnames. But they do have um, a numerological convention about what your name can be. For example, my Burmese name is Zalwin. Right. Zolwin. Zolwin, yes. And uh, which is quite a common common name actually. When you take over the planet Ertria, <laughs> I think you must use this name as Zolwin. your ruler's name, yeah. yeah perhaps. <laughs> um and <clears throat> I was originally given my, my first Burmese teacher was rather uh, lazy, let us say, and he just said, Well, you named Josh, I'll call you Jaw. It sounds kind of like Josh, also a common Burmese name. So I was Jawwin. And then I was in Burma and I was talking to a Burmese person. They're like, what's your name? And I'm like, oh, you know, Jawwin. And they said, well, what day of the week were you born? And I said, well, how would I know? You know, you'd have to look it up. But of course, they would know that because in the Buddhist cosmology, there are eight days of the week. I believe it's two Wednesdays because the Buddha was born on a Wednesday. So Wednesday morning and afternoon are different. And all of the um, initials, uh, initial, you know, in the Burmese alphabet are linked to a particular day. So if you're born on a particular day, your name has to start with a particular, it can only start with letters from that particular series. So I couldn't be named Jaw based on the day that I was born in it. Instead, I had to go with Zaw. Ah. So Burmese names are not like uh, Western naming conventions, and they're very, very much not like Chinese naming conventions, where, of course, you know, the, the surname is everything. 
It's very confusing. You meet. You, it's very hard to keep people's names straight. You meet multiple people with the same, same name. name. I, I mean, I, I, I asked someone once uh, in a company, I said, well, what do you do with all the, the Winong, which is a very common name? He says, oh, well, you know, when we have a meeting, our boss will go, Winong one, no, Winong two, and they'll call them by, by number because right. there's Although so many Although one has that problem in China sometimes too. I mean, how many millions and millions of Changangs are there? You know, <laughs> All right, great. Thank you, guys. That was uh, so informative uh, for me and I hope for our listeners. Our last section is recommendations. Simon, what you got for us? Uh, I'm going off totally left field here. Um, I read a fantastic article in ESP Sports magazine called The Ugly Face of the Beautiful Game about racism in Italian football or soccer if you're an American. And uh, I'm not a huge football fan. I don't know much about it. But um, this really sort of explored the idea of Italy as this very old tribal country with these, you know, city-states and all these, all these old prejudices and just their inability to deal with a modern multi-ethnic society. And you've got these incredible, you know, ethnic black players who are just fantastic. And yet they encounter racial abuse all the time when they travel in Italy. And the writer kind of goes with these sort of, you know, and there is a neo-Nazi fascist element to it, of course. You know, you have got the old Mussolini fascism guys and you've just got other people are just a very provincial. And then, then you meet some people who are sort of sophisticated and yet still fall back on this racism. So I, I found it a really interesting way of looking at Italy, a country I don't know that well. But it, you come away thinking this is not a you know, modern, coherent country in the way that perhaps it seems from the outside. So fantastic article. You definitely haven't spent a lot of time around Italians if you think that there's anything modern or coherent about them before you read this article. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell us more, Jeremy. Ciao, Mauro. <laughs> Just, uh, <clears throat> sorry, an in-joke to an old friend. Uh, ignore that. <laughs> Josh, what have you got for us? Well, I, I don't have anything quite as um, perhaps colorful as the uh, uh, article on Italian uh, football. But I think I have some basic uh, information or some ba- some suggestions for some basic reading that would help people to get a better background on uh, Myanmar. So Perfect. First is uh, Burma, Myanmar, What Everyone Needs to Know uh, by David Steinberg, who's uh, a noted uh, U.S. Uh, Burma policy expert in uh, at Georgetown, Washington, D.C. Uh, it's a non-academic book. It's not exactly a reference book, but it's a book where you could read, say, one chapter on whatever topic you like, and you, know, you don't have to sort of read it all the way through. But it gives you, you know, puts at your fingertips a lot of this information and some of his, uh, I think, very insightful analysis about sort of the culture of uh, Burmese politics is, is also in there. And, of course, Everything, pretty much everything right now on, um, on Myanmar is a little bit dated because of the rapid pace of change. But nonetheless, I think I tried to bring up a little bit uh, my belief that it's very important to understand sort of the, post-colon- the colonial and modern uh, post-colonial history of uh, Myanmar if we want to understand the kinds of things that are going on today and why, for example, seemingly peaceful Buddhists uh, are you know terrorizing uh, seemingly uh, you know pugnacious uh, Muslims who are you know minding their own peaceful business. So I think um, another recommendation for a brief, uh, slightly more academic book, but one that uh, deals with uh, the sort of historical period that'll be interesting for anyone who wants to understand Myanmar today is a history of modern Burma by uh, Michael Charney. And that's also, you know, it's not uh, overly loaded with footnotes or particularly in-depth into uh, theory, but gives you a very colorful and interesting background on how Myanmar got to be uh, what it is today and goes all the way up to, um, I think, about 2006 or 2008. Fantastic. I'll end this with a very quick recommendation for something sort of frivolous ready is a short film on YouTube about Edward Snowden uh, made by a bunch of Hong Kong filmmakers. It's kind of like an instant film and it's called Verax, V-E-R-A-X, Edward Snowden, uh, if you search for it on YouTube. And um, I mean, it's not the most how brilliant. How long is it? I, uh, how long? It's, uh, I when guess, about five minutes, five <laughs> minutes long. It's, you know, really a very short film, a sort of instant reaction. And, you know, I don't know how good it is, really, but it just seems to me like an example of the way the world is going, that we have, you know, an event like the Snowden Affair and there's a film about it already on YouTube. Before the Hollywood agents like, even get their hands on it. You know, yeah. like I'm sure there's some treatments coming out there. There must be. <laughs> it's a classic story. <laughs> All right. Well, Simon, um, Josh, thank you both so much for coming on the show. And I hope our uh, listeners found that really informative and fun because I did. 
Um, and we will see you here on the Seneca Podcast next week. Thank you very much. Myanmar, Burma, whatever you like.